if you would, please join me in John chapter 7. Continuing on in our uh, study of the Gospel of John, I just tell you quickly how appreciative I am that uh, the Lord has blessed um, our little church well enough that I'm not the only person that you have to hear from Sunday after Sunday, that uh, he has gifted us with another able teacher in Jacob who can come and uh, bring us the word of God, and he did, very, uh, he did so very well last week. Now we turn our attention to think about our Lord and his time on this earth. You would think that the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 would have resulted in tremendous joy and national unity and peace in Jerusalem and in Judea and all of Israel. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The angel of the Lord proclaimed to the shepherds the fulfillment of this passage in Luke chapter 10. He said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. After all, what did the angels who appeared to the angels to the shepherds sing later on in Luke chapter 2? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Is this a Christmas sermon? You would think that the most peaceful time in history, the most joyous time in in human history would be the time that the incarnate Son of God, the fulfillment of these prophecies, the one whose birth is is good news of great joy, the, the coming Son who will be the Prince of Peace. You would think that the time that He spent here on earth, the one who is love incarnate, that it was the most peaceful time, the most joyous time Surely he would have brought peace to every person and place place that he walked, you would think. However, the time that Christ spent on this earth, mainly speaking of his earthly public ministry, was a highly contentious time. It was anything but peaceful, and it was anything but joyous. Let us remember the words of our Lord from Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That is Jesus talking. Let us remember that this Jesus of Nazareth, as he walked the earth, was an incredibly polarizing individual, just as he continues to be today. Jesus Christ is often thought and spoken of as this incredibly compassionate and and tender and merciful and meek individual. And indeed, those things are true. 
We love our Lord because that is true, but it's not all that is true of him. It's only telling a part of the story. The same Jesus of whom it is said that a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench is the same Jesus who said, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. We saw in our time in chapter 6, Jesus showing both his compassionate and caring nature along with his sword wielding. He fed the, the multitudes at the beginning of the chapter. He cared for a very practical need. They were hungry. They needed to eat. There was no food around. And there was a giant multitude of people. And he fed them because he's caring and he's compassionate. And then later in that same exact chapter, Jesus is saying hard things in a very hard way, making the crowd leave. No one has a problem with Jesus when he's healing their sick. Or casting out demons. No one has a problem with Jesus when he's feeding the multitude. People begin to have a problem with Jesus when he begins to speak. They did not want to hear what he had to say then and even less so today. Isn't it amazing that the way that it was portrayed in chapter 6, that the people loved this miracle of the bread and fish so much that they wanted to make Jesus king? They were trying to take him by force to make him king, this just incredible moment. Everyone's united at that moment. Let's make this man our king. But then Jesus began to teach of himself as bread, that you must eat the flesh and drink the blood, that no one can come to the Father unless he draws him, for no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. And those same people who were clamoring for him to be their king they say, I can't deal with this. This is too much. And they leave. What happened? It was the words, it was the teaching of Jesus that pushed people away. My friend, do you think about Jesus this way? Or is he only love and compassion and only tenderness? Because if that is the Jesus you serve, you serve a false Christ. Jesus is that. And he's also holy and he's also righteous and he also came bringing a sword. There again, people do love the teaching about treating others the way that you want to be treated. I mean, who could have a problem with that, right? Children are taught that in public school. Treat others the way that you want to be treated. People are not as fond of him teaching, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying you better love him more than you love your kids. He said right before then that he came to do such a work that your greatest enemies will be in your own house. We have to remember that Jesus was not crucified because he was compassionate. Jesus was not crucified because he was meek and mild. Jesus was crucified because of his claims. They crucified him because he claimed to be the son of God. They did not crucify him because he gave sight to the blind. They crucified him because he shined a light on their sins. And they hated him for it. 
as Jesus will say himself in our passage, they hated him because he testified to the world that his works are evil. It was the words of Jesus that were so incredibly polarizing and divisive. His words. We're going to see this really begin to come into full view as we turn the page, as it were, from chapter 6 to chapter 7. In chapter 7, we're going to see this, the hostility towards Jesus really begin to intensify. And as we move through the rest of this gospel, we're going to come across many more interactions between the Jews and Jesus and the tension that is between them. And you know what never comes up? Why are you so nice? Why are you so meek? Why are you so compassionate? But you know what does come up is Jesus calling them vipers. Jesus saying they are of their father, the devil. That same Jesus, the one that we love and worship. We're going to see this tension rising through this chapter. It's necessary, though, for this tension to be rising, and it's all a part of God's sovereign plan. If you'd like a title for your notes this morning, we can call this sermon very simply Sovereignty and Hostility. We'll have just two major headings. Number one, Submission to the sovereign plan of God. And number two, opposition to the polarizing words of Christ. So let's begin by looking at our text in verses just one and two. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Father, I ask for your help this morning, both for the preaching of your word and for the hearing of your word. Lord, I confess before you and everyone hearing that I am incapable of preaching faithfully your text without your help. I am even more incapable of preaching in in a way that is helpful and powerful in the lives of the hearer without the power of the Spirit. So would you come in this moment and help us to see great and wonderful things in this text this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The chapter begins with a very common phrase in the Gospel of John. He says, after this, when we've seen this phrase phrase previously, we've said that John does not literally mean that the very next thing that happens is this. He just means later, at some point in the future, this next thing happens. So it could mean a week later, it could mean a month or two. But in this case, we actually know that it was about six months later. How do we know that? Because in chapter 6, there was a feast that was at hand, if you recall. It was Passover. And then now we're told that there is another feast that's at hand. It's the Feast of Booths. These would have been about six months apart. So when you turn from chapter 6, the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7, about six months of time has elapsed. John tells us here that Jesus was not going about in Judea, but was going about in Galilee, and that he had been doing this because the Jews were trying to kill him. Going about here, it simply means that he was, that's where he was public, was in Galilee. He was not going about publicly in Judea because the Jews wanted to kill him. They were after him. They wanted him dead. And as sad as this statement is, 
it's not altogether surprising, is it? Because we can remember back to chapter 5, verse 18, where we're first told that the Jews were seeking to kill him. This is after the healing of a man, but it wasn't the healing that they wanted to kill him for. It was because, as the text says, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. For those who ever, you ever hear saying that Jesus never claimed to be God, well, the Jews sure thought so. They can just turn to John chapter 5, verse 18. The Jews want to kill Jesus so Jesus doesn't go around them. Now, why do you think that this is? Was Jesus afraid? Was he not ready? Did, was, was he afraid? He was trying to muster up the courage to die for our sins? Well, I hope that the answer is very clear before you as no. There was never a chance of Jesus not perfectly executing the plan and will of the Father. And that is why Jesus would not go to Judea. Because he was operating according to the Father's plan. The Father had a set day that the Son was supposed to be crucified. We learned that this day was set before the foundation of the world. There was a day. God didn't send Jesus and say, well, we'll see what happens. We'll see. Hopefully this thing kind of works out. The whole thing was planned out, even down to the day and the hour of Jesus' death. And Jesus knows this. This is our first glimpse at the submission of Christ to the sovereign plan of God. Well, at least here in this chapter, not in this gospel. Now, that might sound strange to you if you haven't been with us as we've been learning about the Trinity in Sunday school. Christ submitting to the plan of God. But this was prophesied in Psalm chapter 40. Listen to this, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 9. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. This is Jesus talking prophetically here. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will. It is the delight of the Son to do the will of the Father, even up to and including seemingly insignificant details like where he would spend his time and when he would go to feasts. That's the next thing we see here in verse 2. Verse 2 orients us to where we are on the calendar, as he said, is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, your Bible might say. This was one of the three main feasts of the Jewish calendar. They had Passover, and then they had Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks, and then they had the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths, it's, in, it's instituted in Levit Leviticus chapter 24, if you want to go read that on your own time. It's a time where all the male Jews were required to make the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem uh, to go to the temple to celebrate this feast. The first century historian Josephus, he points out that this feast was the most popular and the most joyous of all other feasts. Do you know why? Because it was celebrating the end of harvest. Now we have some farmers in here and I'm sure that they would tell us that that's a great day. When you have reaped the harvest, and the harvest is good, and your work is done. I'm sure that is a wonderful day. So this is a great time of celebration. They're celebrating the end of their work. They're celebrating the provision of God. 
And they all come up to Jerusalem. It's called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles because it was hearkening back to when the people would, uh, were dwelling in the desert after the exodus from Egypt. So what would happen is everyone would come to town and they would build little makeshift little booths out of sticks often. So everyone's hanging out in these little stick booths. And even people who had homes there in Jerusalem, historians say that they would build a little stick, makeshift stick house on the roof of their home. Because this was a very important time on the Jewish calendar. So that's the contextual setting that we find ourselves within here at the beginning of the chapter. Now let's look at verses 3 and 4. We're confronted with something very surprising here. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Because it is time for the feast, because it is the most popular of the feasts, and because male Jews were required to go to the feast, the brothers say to Jesus that he should leave Galilee, because remember we wrote in verse 1 that he was going about in Galilee, not in Judea. He should leave Galilee and go to Judea and reveal himself to the world. Now who are these people, these brothers? Well, if you are a fan of St. Augustine, he would say that the word brothers can mean cousin. It can mean just general family members. But it kind of seems like the word brothers mean brothers to me. Who am I to argue with Augustine? Matthew chapter 13, verse, 40, 40, or verse 55, tells us who these brothers are. They're James and Joseph and Simon and Jews, Judas. The same James who wrote the book of, can you guess it? James. Wow, that was an inventive name. James. Here he is in this group. They're urging Jesus to go to Jerusalem to show himself to the world. Now remember, John has just told us that Jesus has not chosen or has chosen not to walk about in Judea because the Jews are seeking to kill him. And his brothers are saying, "Go to Judea and reveal yourself publicly." That's it kind of might seem like, "Hey, they they want him to be known. They want Jesus to be Known, they're just looking out for his best interest. They want his ministry to grow. But the brothers aren't aware of Jesus following perfectly the plan of the Father, are they? All that they see is Jesus staying out of the spotlight as he ministers there in Galilee. Jerusalem was, of course, the center of religious activity for the Jews. And its significance was such because of the temple. That that's where the temple was. There were synagogues in various towns around Jerusalem, but if you needed to go to the temple, which they were required to do for feasts, you had to go to Jerusalem. It was the one place where you could go to the temple. So his brothers say, look, if you're really who you say you are, if you're really doing what you say you're doing, if all of these things are supposed to prove your Messiahship, then you need to go to Jerusalem because People in that area need to see what you're doing. This is the, the, the hub of religious activity. Go there where the religious folk are and show yourself to be the Messiah. It might seem like they want his ministry to grow. Perhaps 
They genuinely care to see Jesus known by all. But you see, what we learn is just how hard the human heart is apart from a sovereign work of God upon it. How do we see that? Verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. That is a shocking statement. Not even his brothers believed in him. The truth is here that they are saying these things because they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe that he is who he says he is at this point. Just think of it, friends. These brothers lived with the incarnate Son of God for decades, and they still don't believe in him. They were around Jesus more than the disciples were for longer periods of time, and they did not believe in him. Evidently, they have watched him do miracles, but they have not had the eyes to see who he is. They've heard him speak and teach, but they have not had ears to hear the divine authority in his speech. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus' own family cannot believe in him without God opening their eyes and ears, is it any wonder that our family and friends that our loved ones, that they can't believe apart a sovereign work of God. Of course not. They're the brother of Jesus, and they don't believe in him. Sometimes we can put so much pressure on ourselves thinking that we are the ones who are responsible for saving our loved ones, that it's up to me whether or not my family believes in Jesus. Perhaps that can become discouraging when they reject Christ. Perhaps it can be frustrating. They just can't see the change in you. And you get frustrated. You get frustrated they don't want that change for themselves, that they don't love the truth. But if being as close, physically speaking, as these brothers were to the incarnate Son of God was not enough to make them believe, Neither is it enough for our unbelieving family members to just absorb belief in Jesus by osmosis just by being around them. Friend, you're not that holy. You're not that godly. You're not that Christ-like. Because even Christ himself, apart from the work of God, him being there in the room throughout their whole life, that was not enough for them. You need the work of the Spirit. Indeed, Jesus' words from chapter 6, verse 44, are stunningly true. That no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Not even people in his own house. Now do you see why he said he came to bring a sword? And that the greatest enemies will be in your own household. Let us at the same time find comfort in the reality that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness, in, in our pain, in, in our discouragement. We have a high priest who was grieved, who experienced loss, whose own family did not believe in him. So then we can come confidently and pray to him, knowing that he understands exactly where you're coming from. Let us rely wholeheartedly then upon the sovereign drawing of the Father when it comes to the salvation of our loved ones. Let us pray earnestly that the Lord opens eyes and ears as we share the gospel. 
Now, one more note on the brothers here. You can see their unbelief also displayed in that they think the way to believe is by seeing miracles. Didn't we learn this in chapter 6 already? This seeing is not believing. We learned that sobering truth in a very real way in chapter 6, that witnessing the miracles of Jesus, even eating of the miraculous work of Jesus, it's not enough to move the heart dead in sin to believing in Jesus. And Jesus is not interested in garnering for himself a massive following. Jesus is far more concerned with the depth of his ministry than the breadth. That is, he is far more concerned with having even just the 12. But those 12 being rock solid in their understanding and belief in him than having a multitude of followers who are after Jesus just for material benefit. Let that also be a reminder for all of us, myself included, as we think about our own church. It's easy to drive by other churches that have a packed out parking lot on a Sunday morning and then come here where we have a small gathering and begin to think of how maybe we should start doing things to draw a large crowd. But listen, I want our church to grow just as much as anybody else, but never at the expense of the depth of the ministry. A tree with very shallow roots gets blown over very easily. We don't want that. What good would it do to have a giant branches and this giant trunk of a tree, but the roots are this deep? It would be useless. It would be pointless. It is far better to have a small gathering of people whose roots are growing down deep into Christ than a house full of shallow believers who really don't care about Christ at all. Who are really just like, man, how much longer is this going to go on? Who are really just thinking about, how, when are we going to go to lunch? What are these guys even talking about? Give us the small crowd who love God. Big crowds who love Jesus too, by the way. That's an aside. Verses 6 through 9. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about, about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus shows us here that he does not operate according to the will of man, but according to the will of the Father. He's not interested in revealing himself to all of Jerusalem in such a way that's going to garner for himself a massive following. He's interested first and foremost in submitting himself to the Father's will and the Father's timing. That is what is of utmost importance. After all, Jesus knows that there will be a day when the company of the redeemed is gathered together at last, and their number will outnumber the stars in the sky as we gather around the throne and we sing his praises for all of eternity. So why, does, why would he need that now? Why would he need a large following now? He doesn't need it. Instead, for all of human history, he's gathering to himself a people. That day is coming, but for now, Jesus has work 
to do. In fact, the way that he is going to gather for himself this great multitude is by adhering perfectly to the plan of the Father because the plan of the Father is for Jesus to shed his blood to purify this future multitude. Jesus can't veer off path. He is here on a divine mission, one that is unaffected by the whims of his unbelieving brothers. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. You see, he understands well that the Jews want to kill him. And if he is to go to Jerusalem with them in this large caravan, because that's how they would travel and make this pilgrimage, it wasn't just one person, you take your car, it's, hey, let's call all of our tias and tios and our abuelas and abuelitas, and let's get everyone together, and everyone goes down up to Jerusalem. It was a big to-do, a large group of people that would go together. So he understands that if he's to join this giant caravan and go about walking and working publicly, they're surely going to try to kill him before his time has come. It's not that Jesus is afraid. It's that he has submitted himself willingly to the plan and purpose of his Father. But your time is always here, he says. You see this stark contrast between the brothers and Jesus. His time has not yet come. It is of eternal significance that he not move an inch outside of the Father's will or a second before the Father's timing. But for you, brothers, it ain't going to matter. It is of zero significance whether you leave now or in 10 minutes or in three hours. That's shocking. The, the son walked perfectly according to the father's will such that not one single step could be taken outside of the father's timing. But for you, brothers, who cares? It's of zero significance. It is eternally significant when Jesus goes or doesn't go. It is of zero significance whether you leave now or not. Why? Why would he say that? Keep reading. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. It's as though he is saying, you are of the world. And since you are of the world, you live without a second thought to God's plan and purpose. You could care less. It doesn't matter. And since you are of the world, the world does not hate you because you're just like them. They're not going to try to kill you for going down to Jerusalem, but they will try to kill him. The world does not hate its own. Remember, he's talking to his brothers who do not believe in him, not his disciples. Because later he says to his disciples in chapter 15, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world does not hate his brothers because they are unbelieving, just like the rest of the world. Be greatly concerned, my friends, if all of those who are in the world speak highly of you. Be very concerned that the world that is at enmity with Christ finds a friend in you. Be very concerned because it might just be that they think you're just like them. Dead in sin, unbelieving, religious and maybe spiritual, but you're not really trying to push your faith on them. 
Jesus says the world hates him because he testifies about it, but it's worse or evil. As we said in the introduction, it's not the compassion of Jesus, it's not his miracles that drive people away, it's his words. People cannot bear to hear what he has to say because he testifies that their works are evil. In other words, he preached the sinfulness of man. The world hated him because he he shined a light on them. He convicted them of their sin. In stark contrast today, there are many pastors who draw a crowd because they don't do this. They are invited to speak on CNN or or the Oprah Winfrey show. They're platformed because they don't do what Jesus did. They have a large following because they don't say what Jesus said. There are many pastors who are far more interested in keeping people coming and giving everyone a wonderful, heartfelt, emotional, feel-good little message about your purpose and then the great plan that God has for you instead of ever touching on man's greatest issue, which is sin. It's not very Christ-like because Christ spoke about sin so much that they hated him and eventually killed him. But he never would have been killed if he spoke about sin as little as the modern pastor would. You can't preach Christ without convicting people of their sin. Christ didn't preach without convicting people of their sin. So Jesus says he's not going to this feast because this time's not fully come. And then there's some difficulty, isn't there? Look in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. So is your Bible inconsistent? Does this prove that your Bible is written by man and you shouldn't trust it? Because Jesus said he wasn't going to go to the feast. And then a verse later, he's going to the feast. What's going on here? Well, if he's just a careful reader. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And then Jesus just said a moment ago, my time has not yet come. It was not time because he was submitted to the Father's will. He was not to go publicly in this giant caravan to join everybody in all of the hoopla because then too much attention would be drawn to him. And perhaps they would try to kill him before the time. So instead, there's another divine plan. And it is for Jesus to go separately and in private. Now let's look at the opposition to the polarizing words of Christ in verses 10 through 13. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Here we can see clearly the mixed sentiments of the people regarding Christ. Some people were saying that Jesus is, he's a good man. Other people are saying that he's leading people astray. They're both wrong, but one of them is completely wrong. One of them doesn't go far enough. Yes, Jesus was a good man, but he's way more than that. And on the other hand, it's downright heretical and demonic to say that Jesus is deceiving people. 
He's leading people astray. Think of it, friends. This was the sentiment of Jesus at this time. Do you think that this happens because of compassion and meekness and mildness? That people hate him and call him a deceiver? Of course not. It's because he called himself equal with God. Because he's God in the flesh. It is because he shined a light on the wicked ways of the world. That is why they wanted to kill him. Some people think Jesus is good. Some people think he's fake. Some people think he's a liar. He's a deceiver. Not only is he a good man, but he's... These people think that not only is he not a good man, but he's actually behaving in a harmful manner by leading people astray. His brothers didn't believe in him. The crowds didn't believe in him. By our current standards, let me ask you, was Jesus' ministry a success or a wild failure? No one believes. His family doesn't believe. He's driving people away. They hate him. They want to kill him. By modern standards, Jesus has a failing ministry. But we know that's not true. He doesn't have a good ministry marketing strategy because he's hiding himself in Galilee. He's not going about publicly. He isn't drawing attention to himself. And those who are familiar with Jesus either don't truly grasp who he is or they think he is an outright deceiver or they just don't believe in him at all. We're reminded here of what John wrote in the prologue in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, speaking of Jesus, that he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Surely he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and they esteemed him not. And yet, this is not a failure, because this is all part of God's plan. As we see this growing hostility towards Jesus, it is as though we are standing in the shadow of the cross. The cross is where the hatred of sinners for Christ comes into full view. Man will think that he is doing the right thing by scorning the Son of God. But what will really be happening on that cross is that the Son of God will bear our shame, our sin, and the wrath of God meant for us. While we are seeing this, the cross cast its shadow upon the narrative here in our text, let's be reminded of how low our Lord stooped to save us. He left the, all of the comforts of heaven to come and be hated, to be an outcast, for people to hate him so much they want to kill him and to eventually die. The Lord of glory was rejected by man so that we could be accepted by God. So what do you say about Jesus? Who is he to you? Is he a good man? Is he the one who blesses you? Is he the one that helps you out sometimes with your anxiety? Who is Jesus? You see, the fact that he lived and died, it is a historical fact. Even that his body has never been recovered is a historical fact. You have
have to do something about the historical person of Jesus. He cannot be just a good man. For if he is just a good man, then we haven't been paying a lot of attention because he claimed to be the son of God, making himself equal with God. Good men don't say things like that. He is not just a man. He is the God man. As we read in chapter 5, verse 18, he made himself equal with God. One who is nothing more than a good man would not make himself equal with God because that would be more akin to the incoherent ramblings of a lunatic than the words of a good man. So maybe he was a deceiver. You see, if, if all the things that he was saying about himself are not true, then it's truly said of him that he was leading people astray and that he's a deceiver. And we should read that and say, yep, they're right. So we have to do something about these claims because he was real. He really lived. He really died. And you really can't dig up his body. He's not here anymore. The tomb is actually empty. And then we come to the scriptures and we see all of these claims of his making himself equal with God, saying that we have to believe in him. Otherwise, we will perish eternally. My friends, either that's true or he's a liar. Which one do you believe this morning? Plenty of people are willing to compliment Jesus and even say that he's an example that we should follow, but they just can't get on board with him as Lord and King. As we have said a few times in our time in this gospel so far, you can believe a lot of really great things about Jesus, but if you don't believe the one thing that you need to believe, you do not have salvation, no matter how many times you go to church no matter how many small groups you're a part of, no matter how many theological books are on your wall, no matter how many hours a day you spend praying, you cannot be saved if you don't believe the one thing about Jesus that you need to believe. What you believe about Jesus is the most important part about who you are because it is the one thing about you that has eternal consequences. It's what you say about Christ. Is he real? Is he Lord and King? Is he the Son of God? Is he the propitiation for your sins? If not, my friend, the only thing that you have to look forward to is a fearful expectation of judgment that will consume your adversaries. That's your future. Or you can believe upon Christ. You can call upon him as Lord. And the scriptures, the inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God promises you that you will be saved. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, let us be like our Lord who relied entirely on the sovereign work and plan of the Father. We cannot expect to always know what the Father is doing as the Son did. In fact, almost we will almost never have a clue what he's doing. But we can trust him just the way that Jesus did and rely heavily upon him, knowing that whatever he ordains is right. Even if what he ordains is hostility and hatred, let us also entrust the results of ministry, whether the result of this ministry or the results of you 
sharing the gospel with your friends and family to the sovereign plan of God, knowing that no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws them. Now this morning we have an incredible opportunity to celebrate that sovereign drawing to the Father as we baptize Devin Friedendorf, our newest member to the Flatland family. Let us be reminded that as we baptize him this morning, it is not baptism that saves him. This is an outward display that salvation has already come to him, that he has believed in Christ as Lord. We'll get to hear of his testimony, and we'll get to celebrate this ordinance that Christ has given his church. So we're going to pray and sing a song, and we will observe baptism. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we thank you for the sovereign work of God in our hearts, because without that, we would be utterly lost. Lord, I thank you for Devin and the work that you've done in his life. And I thank you that we get to celebrate this wonderful occasion as we publicly profess that he has been buried with Christ and raised to life, newness of life in Christ Jesus. May he receive all honor, all glory, all praise, both now and for all eternity. In Christ's name we pray.